and welcome to SciShow Tangents. It's the lightly competitive knowledge showcase. I am your host, Hank Green, and joining me this week, as always, is science expert, Sari Riley. Hello. And our resident everyman, Sam Schultz. Hello. Before we started recording the podcast, it would be difficult to not mention the fact that Sam uh, left us waiting while we watched his exterminator <laughs> try and kill the bugs that have infested his home. <laughs> well, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, he was over there with all this gas just like spraying around. Yeah. And then yep. now Sam's just sitting there in the same room where the bug man really just left an, uh, an arsenal of stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of gas. We are seeing him on the Zoom call is a lot of gas and a lot of bugs. And Sam. The gas will make me funnier. That's <laughs> Everyone knows that. Sari, how is your new home with regards to bugs? Oh, it's fine. I haven't felt like there's been a big bug problem. I thought there was mm-hmm. a fruit fly infestation or fungus gnat in my plants, but turns out we just had rotting potatoes on the counter. So, uh, <laughs> one time when I was in college, our, our apartment smelled really, really bad. And we just sort of like lived that way for a long time. And then one day we decided to take out the recycling that had been piling up for uh, over a month. And so it was just uh, newspapers, literally, because that's how old I am. It was mostly newspapers and magazines just piled up in a big pile. We were taking it out. And in between two of the newspapers was a chicken breast. Oh, a raw one? <laughs> a raw, a raw chicken chicken breast. That's the stinkiest thing of all. We were we were convinced it was just Pete. Oh. <laughs> but no, it was a raw chicken and nobody ever figured out who did it. Gross. Anyway, <laughs> I feel so much better about my potato situation now. (laughs) Every week here on Tangents, we get together to try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts while also trying to stay on topic. But sometimes we'll talk about chicken breast newspapers. Our panelists are playing for glory, but also they're playing for Hank Bucks, which I will be awarding as we play. And at the end of the episode, one of them will be crowned the winner. Now, as always, we're going to introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem, this week from Sari. This is an ode to the power of power, not feats of strength or battles of might, the thrum from a drum making kilowatt hours to charge up a car or turn on a light in exchange for some fuel that it does devour. Wars have been fought over gas, oil, or coal, those remnants of yore that can generate heat, but some set their sights on a greener goal, turbines towering on hills or panels paving a street. We hope with our souls to take more control. But the thing about power is power is fraught. Our technology needs it to hum where and beep. Yet at what cost in this cycle we're caught? And change, my dear friends, doesn't come cheap. So we try our best to do what we can, making plan after plan and adhering to bans to care for life beyond our lifespan and do a little better than when we began. I mean, we're getting really good at this. I think our poems are amazing now. (laughs) That was so good. I felt like like Wordsworth was in the room. Yes. Okay, wonderful. I mean, gosh. So our topic for the day is power generation, which can be done in a lot of different ways. So I guess we shouldn't just focus on power plants because you can do it without a power plant, Uh, which is extraordinarily important. And I guess mostly is focused on electricity. Can you make the case that there is power generation that does not involve electricity? Probably, whether that's just like grinding up a mill or something. But like, is that is sort of that the vibe that we're going for, Sari? Yeah, I think so. In the email that I received about this topic, <laughs> it said, like power plants, solar panels, anything like that. Right. And yeah. so uh, most of what I directed my research towards was electricity generation. Mm-hmm. So how do you get an electron to move? You know, I looked this up. 
and I can say the words, but I think that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, one of the things we try not to do is we try not to explain things we don't understand here at SciShow. And yet. (laughs) And yet we keep covering topics that have to do with non-biological things, but that's okay. So generally, I think a lot of power generators are electromagnetic in nature. So basically what that means is there is a coil of wire Mm -hmm. that is static and it's called the stator. Mm -hmm. I found a term for that. And then something turns a rotor, which turns a shaft inside the center of the stator. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's like what burning coal does. You turn the rotor. Flowing water and hydroelectric systems, you turn a rotor. Windmill spinning, you turn a rotor. Mm -hmm. And that turning action, there's like some sort of magnetic or electrical stuff Mm -hmm. going on in that rotor. Yep. So that the magnetic field is changing Mm -hmm. around the wires. And that changing magnetic field causes the electrons to move in such a way that it creates a current. And then that current runs out the wire on the other side and... Then you get into like alternating current and direct current. And depending on how you process sure. the, that flow of electrons, you get different kinds of electricity. But that is the, the bare basics of it. There is a thing that spins around and that spinning pushes electrons and those electrons get pushed through your light bulb. And that is how electricity works. That is as far as I've like really gotten in terms of being able to explain this. Why spinning a magnet inside of a bunch of wires does this? I'm sorry. Turns out electricity and magnetism are the same thing. Mm. Am I ever going to really get that? I don't think so. But somebody does, and thank God for them. There, are, The one that's different from that, really, is solar panels, mm-hmm. which actually physically, like, the photon comes in, and it basically knocks an electron free somehow. Hmm. Yes. They're made of semiconductors. Yeah. And so they absorb right. the photons that are emitted by the sun, and then somehow electrons are knocked free and then flow. Yeah. Huh. And they fall down a hole. <laughs> <laughs> there's always it's like a gumball talk about holes in semiconductors a lot. And I'm like, okay, so there's a hole. I get it. It falls into the hole. Good. That's all I need. Yeah. But otherwise, you're just spinning stuff around mostly. It's That's almost it. all spinning stuff around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think a uh, solar panel is kind of like a, a battery that is charged by the sun. There's like layers to it. And then mm-hmm. those layers help guide the movement of electrons so it's not just random. Like, that's what creates the metaphorical hole for them Mm. to fall down. I looked up the etymology of both power and generation. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And those are, I don't know, they're pretty basic. Like, the idea of powerful things or, like, leaders existed. Mm -hmm. And so power kind of existed. And then generation just comes from the same root as gene, which is to, like, give birth or create offspring or things like that. So you're like generating more powerful things. Uh, But I I really tried to dive into when we were using the word power, not to mean a powerful person, but to mean energy. Mm -hmm. Right. And I couldn't find an exact answer to it. One online source that I was reading, the etymology dictionary that I refer to for all of these said that power meaning energy available for work is from 1727. Hmm. But it sounds like we first used the word power to 
refer to energy. So instead of calling something like energy is moving through a system, we said power was moving through a system. Because when I was looking at the history of the word energy and how physicists used it, then the ideas behind the concept of energy began forming at the end of the 17th century when the term was first used in English to refer to power. So my sense is that we used energy and power kind of interchangeably until a physicist was like, we actually need equations to describe this because of this yeah. is confusing. And energy is <laughs> going to be one thing and power is going to be another thing. And mm-hmm. I've, luckily, I've got two words because there's two things here. Yeah. Oh, gosh, power. It's very important. I can't believe that it works at all. Which brings us to our first game of the show, because power plants take up a lot of space and they inevitably interact with animals. And that can be bad for the power station, but also for the animal. In 2016, for example, a raccoon accidentally knocked out power to 40,000 homes in Seattle after getting into a power station. The raccoon did not lose power. The raccoon lost its life. So to protect wildlife and humans alike, power stations and scientists have been developing different tools to prevent animals from invading. And so we are going to play this or that, where I'm going to present you with a uh, tool or strategy designed to keep power stations and animals separate and not impacting each other. And you will have to guess what animal the tool was designed for. That's the game. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. You'll get two to choose from. You don't have to just pick a random animal. <laughs> that That's good because otherwise there's a, too many small furry mammals and too many types of birds. <laughs> yeah. Well, this first one isn't going to be about either of those things because these oceanic invaders have been known to shut down power plants all over the world, including stations in Scotland, Sweden, Israel, and the Philippines. To prevent these invasions from taking place, researchers have been working on a tracking tool that will model the path of the animal over the year and help the power plants predict future invasions. Which is it? Is it jellyfish or is it eels? Mm. I was thinking barnacles until you said yeah. <laughs> said moving. Yeah, I was going to say mussels of some sort. Uh-huh. Yeah, like, those are also important for power plants. That's a big problem for hydroelectric plants is, hmm. is mussels. I'm going to say jellyfish because I just have the image from some nature documentary I was shown in elementary school of like something thinking that a plastic bag floating in the ocean was a jellyfish and eating it and being like, this is what your plastic bags are doing to the environment. So I imagine <laughs> jellyfish, if they were sucked into something, they would gum it up like a plastic bag. Mm-hmm. I am going to go with eels because I think a jellyfish would just get pulped in the plant. No problem. Well, in 1999, jellyfish were responsible for a massive power failure in the Philippines after they got sucked into a seawater intake of a power plant in Manila. Mm. The authorities later reported that they removed, Sam, maybe they pulped some of them, 50 truckloads of jellyfish. What? No. <laughs> they have also shut down power stations in a lot of places because their populations can increase really quickly uh. to the point where they're actually a fairly significant portion of the seawater. And jellyfish can't like control where they swim, right? They just kind of drift around. That's true. They just there's like, oh, there's a current headed this way. I don't know why. And they they can like push themselves a little bit, but mostly they're planktonic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh. So they didn't even want to be sucked in. They did not want to cause problems. But uh, researchers announced in 2016 that they're working on a model of how jellyfish blooms travel over the course of a year, which would give power plants a warning tool to predict future invasions. All right. So Sari has one point headed into round number two. These animals are maybe unfairly considered to be a pest by many. But in a power station, they're actually a potential safety hazard, which is why it might be weird to know that some power stations will actually feed these animals. That's weird. 
But it turns out that they put something in the food. Is it poison? No, it's not. It's birth control to limit the growth of the animal's population. What is it? Is it rats or is it pigeons? Rude. Rude. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Is it better than poison? I don't know. Uh, this is too much of a philosophical question. <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends on depends on how you think about it. Yeah. Sure. I think those two animals seem so similar. But I feel like pigeons are easier to take care of. You just go, get out of here. And you know where they are. They're not really hiding. Rats are a little bit tougher. Uh-huh. I'm going to go with rats. Yeah, you think it's rats? I also think it's rats. I, I'm trying to guess an animal while you're explaining it. And in my head, popped in rats. So I'm going to go with it. Okay. Well, power stations are a great space for safety and warmth for pigeons. (laughs) (laughs) And so, like in cities, power plants have multiple strategies to deal with pigeons. They have nets, they have spikes, all with the aim to prevent fall hazards. So if the pigeons like accidentally like push something over, like all with the aim to uh, prevent fall hazards. So if pigeons actually push something over, it could land on someone. Uh, Also just contamination issues from the poop. But pigeons are smart and they're very persistent. And that's why this uh, birth control system called ovocontrol has been developed. The feeders hold about 120 pounds of bait laced with birth control because the goal isn't to rid the whole area of pigeons. That would just mean another flock would move in. So this way, they get to prevent uh, the fall hazards of pigeons making nests and eggs That because they're terrible at nest building. That would then <laughs> fall on people. And uh, and I think that they just like poop less when there's like fewer of them because they're sort of trying to make the baby thing happening. So it keeps the population low without uh, allowing a new population of pigeons to move in and starting to breed more. Okay. So you don't want to get rid of them completely. You would if you could, but you can't. So you just get rid of their ability to breed. All right. That's less rude than murdering them or something. I suppose it is less rude than murdering them. All right. So we're headed into round three. With the same score, Sari has one point, Sam has none. Sometimes (laughs) you just give in to the animals, as is the case for this beloved beast that is drawn to the warmth coming from power plants. Their commitment to the area has led to the creation of sanctuaries around power plants to shelter this animal. Is it pandas or manatees? Oh. Warmth. They both seem so gentle. Manatees live in like Florida. They're probably always warm, right? It could get chilly. How chilly? I grew up in Florida, and there are times when you wouldn't want to, like, swim around in the ocean, for sure. Okay, okay. I don't feel like I've heard pandas wanting, like, warmth or hugs. Like, they're just so slow. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sometimes they like playing in snow. Maybe after that they want, a, like, a panda equivalent of a hot chocolate, but <laughs> I have not seen that. So I'm going to guess manatees. They seem like they would like a cuddle more than a panda would like a cuddle. Uh-huh. Well, I know from SciShow that pandas like rolling horse poop to, to warm up if it's too cold. Something like that. Wow, okay. You probably hosted that episode, Hank. So I forgot about it. <laughs> uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with my guns and say pandas. Alright. Well, in 1986, Big Bend Power Station saw a surge in the number of manatees yeah. gathering oh. at the station's discharge channel, which was full of warm water coming from the plant. And it is very important that manatees have a pretty specific range of temperatures that they like to live in. And when it gets too cold, they do seek out these warmer spots. Power plants discharge warmer water into the ocean. So other plants in Florida have also been able to serve as manatee sanctuaries, and this has actually helped increase the population of manatees. But 
While that is an exciting success for manatee populations in the short term, it's not a great long-term success story because it relies on the existence of coal plants, Mm -hmm. which are being phased out uh, because they are otherwise not great for the environment. And as power plants begin to switch over to other resources, scientists are trying to figure out how to help manatees in their search for warmer waters. Wild. Get them hot tubs. They got to make manatee hot tubs. I've actually been to one of these manatee sanctuaries by a power plant and it's just like, wow, these guys are so happy. (laughs) It was like always there. Uh, You know, they know where they're going to be. So they're able to keep boats away. And that's been quite good. Well, that means that Sarah came out of that with two points and Sam with none. Uh, So he's got a a steep hole to dig out of when we come back uh, from our break, when it will be time for the fact off. Slasher Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. Video games, art-making programs, food delivery services, these things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast aspersions? Dispersions? Aspersions. One of those. But... It does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun Mm -hmm. burns out. And you know what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. (laughs) (laughs) You want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. That bean's not going to grow. If there's there's a constant drain on the the bean, that (laughs) is where Rocket Money comes in. With Rocket Money, you can see all your subscriptions in one place, decide what you do and don't want, and cancel things with just a tap. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and beyond I mean, beans and beyond subscription canceling (laughs) rocket money helps you build budgets, track your spending and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans. So they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users and it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I'd buy more beans. (laughs) (laughs) Different kind of bean, I guess. a so cheaper, beans, more yeah. of a cheaper type you of bean. You buy cheaper beans with your expensive beans. <laughs> yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have. <laughs> Subscription <laughs> companies hate this one simple trick because you figured out their plot. And now you can use that money for beans instead. Stop wasting <laughs> money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans. Cancel your unwanted <laughs> subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Factor, whose ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning. Stress is stressful. I don't like it. <laughs> Life just goes and goes, and it doesn't ever stop going. There's always something else to do. And one of those things is a very important thing called eating dinner. To eat dinner, one must pick out what they want to eat and then go to the grocery store and then buy the stuff and then chop the stuff and do other things to the stuff. You have to heat the stuff and put it in water. And then afterwards, you have to 
take the things that you heated it in and they're gross and you have to make them clean again. Meanwhile, life is still happening that all all that's building up around you. Um, this is like, terrifying. I'm so yeah. I never want to cook again. <laughs> You're right, factor ad. I don't. I don't want to have this happen. This is unacceptable. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, parentheses, all the time, uh, you just don't have the time or the energy for meal planning on top of everything else going on in your life. So thankfully, Factor is here to help. Factor's two-minute meals are your secret weapon come mealtime. You can get chef-crafted meals that are better for you and better tasting than takeout delivered right to your door. Ready to heat and ready to eat. No prep, no mess, no sink full of dishes, no stress. We're kicking stress out the door in 2024, and I certainly hope that's true for me. Heck yeah, Factor. <laughs> Kick my stress. Right out the door. <laughs> I'm gonna get a I'm gonna get a chest freezer just for these meals. <laughs> Oh, you're going to need one because they have over 35 meals to choose from. Flexible ordering options, add-ons, smoothies. Factor offers all sorts of fast, simple solutions when you're too busy to cook. Banish your stress, even if it's just for like one hour while you're eating dinner. Head to factormeals.com slash tangents50 and use code tangents50 to get 50% off. That's code tangents50 at factormeals.com slash tangents50 to get 50% off. All right, welcome back, everybody. Now it's time for the Fact Off. Our panelists have brought science facts to present to me in an attempt to blow my mind after they have presented the facts. I will judge which one will become a TikTok next week or <laughs> tomorrow, I guess, as this comes out, and uh, and then award an amount of Hank Bucks in any way I see fit to the winner. Who goes first? Well, we're going to decide that with a trivia question. Mandrianwala Budi is a village in India located near the Ganges River. There are no power poles in the village, and in recent years, the government has been making a push towards solar power in the area. As of 2019, what percentage of homes in Mandrianwala Budi are powered completely by solar? Ooh. Oh, dear. This is something that I would like to know more about. Eventually, I would love to have solar panels on a house that I own mm -hmm. and know more about electricity. But this has been a distant future goal for a long time of knowing things about electricity. So I'm just going to guess 51%. 51%. They got more than half. What do you think, Sam? It's got to be more than half or else, I don't know. It seems like it would have to be a really high number. So I'm going to guess like 80%. 100% of homes oh. are powered by solar power. Good job. All right, Sam. That means that you get to decide who goes first. I want Sari to go first. I'm feeling <laughs> deflated. Oh. <laughs> well, I'll pump you right up with my fact. Oh my gosh. You'll you'll get the really you'll mean. get the joke in a little bit, I think. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wink. So a big push in environmental sustainability efforts is using things more than once or more than one way, like steering away from single-use plastics or composting food scraps to make fertilizer. But a big problem is that this one-and-done mentality is kind of normalized. For example, like we've been talking about, some major ways we generate power involve harvesting a fuel source like coal or natural gas or oil and burning it up. Mm -hmm. However, there's a lot of research into how we can use bacteria to keep inedible organic waste from heading to landfills and instead harness it to replace some of those one-and-done fuels. Mm. And this is called a biogas system. 
So I was making the joke about the gas. Uh, I don't really. You can cut it all out. Uh, <laughs> nope, it's staying in. I hate that for me. Uh, <laughs> so biogas systems utilize bacteria that do anaerobic digestion, which means they munch on the wastes in an oxygen-free environment. There are three main steps, breaking everything down into simpler organic materials, called hydrolysis, turning those into organic acids, called acetogenesis, and then turning those into biogas, called methanogenesis. And biogas is just a mixture of methane, carbon dioxide, and some other gases. And the rest of the solids and liquids are just a goop called digestate, which can be useful for fertilizers. My brain immediately associates methane and carbon dioxide and other gases as bad in environmental context because mm -hmm. they're both greenhouse gases that trap heat in the atmosphere. But the reality is that harnessing biogas is preferable to letting all this stuff just decompose and release these gases directly into the atmosphere over time. So this is a way to capture these gases from the waste rather than just letting it go straight unused into heating up the planet. And that's because natural gas is mostly methane. And so we can either burn biogas to generate power or separate out just the methane to create biomethane, which is also called renewable natural gas, mm -hmm. and replace natural gas in the already established power generation systems. Um, and this is already happening in some places, like with animal poop on farms, agricultural wastes, or my favorite, weird food waste that people didn't know what to do with. So, for example, in December 2016, Michigan State University in the U.S. found themselves with 2,500 gallons of bad, goopy mayonnaise. Oh. And instead of throwing it out, they plopped it into a biogas system that powers farm areas nearby campus. Oh, um, or there's a power plant in the French Alps where Beaufort cheese is made that uses all the way to make around 2.8 million kilowatt hours per year of energy, around enough to support a community of 1,500 people. And this is still a very small fraction of power generation, but food waste is such a massive issue. Uh, some statistics, it seems like around 30% of the global food supply is wasted every year. So uh, anything we can do to keep from just trashing it seems relatively better. One of the hardest things to decarbonize is the existing natural gas infrastructure. So we have so much infrastructure in the U.S. Mm. and other places that is how do you like getting methane into our homes so that we can burn it for hot water and for heat and in stoves. Stoves, you can replace that with an electric or other kind of stove, but hot water and, and heat are really hard to convert from. So the only ways you can change that is by finding some sort of carbon neutral way to generate methane and biogas is the, the, the main way. Hats off to people who are trying to make that work. Mm -hmm. All right, Sam, what do you have for us? Okay, here I go. <laughs> Hydroelectric dams generate energy by basically blocking a river and funneling the water from the river past a turbine. The water spins the turbine and the energy of the water's movement is stored as electricity. Sure, but in order to harness that energy, the dam has to block up a river and there are still fish that live in the mm -hmm. river and those fish need to get past the dam so they can do the things that fish do. Uh, and in those dams, for a lot of them, the fish, I think, just kind of squeeze past the turbine, like which can be dangerous, uh -huh, not great for uh -huh. them. Other dams have ways for fish to travel past the turbine in ways that don't involve them swimming past it and getting squished or bumped around or whatever, like pipes and fish ladders and things like that. But researchers in the Pacific Northwest were noticing that even in dams with safety precautions like pipes uh, that fish could go through, about 10% of fish were still coming out of the dams dead or badly injured. So they hypothesized that the fish were just bumping into things and like flipping around and going nuts in there. But they didn't really have a way to figure out what was going on. I guess they couldn't like put a camera on there and see what was going on and <laughs> they couldn't talk to the fish or anything like that. Yeah. So they invented the sensor fish. 
So they're 3.5 inch long devices. They're about the size of a salmon smolt when they first make their trip from the river to the ocean. And they're perfectly balanced to float at the depth that salmon smolt swim. And they're filled with sensors that allow them to take 2,000 measurements per second. And they're designed to be sent through a dam, take measurements during their trip, come out the other side. Then there's like a balloon on a timer that inflates. So then you can just <laughs> scoop them up. Scientists uh, were mostly interested in the jostles and rotations that fish were making in the dams. Uh-huh. But the sensor fish had a barometer in them. And that is what revealed an unexpected culprit of fish harm, sudden pressure changes. Oh. So as water travels through dams, it makes a pretty big drop which is how it gets going, I guess, to spin the turbine. And that drop, plus all the turbulence of things spinning around and stuff like that, can cause sudden changes in water pressure that the fish aren't, they don't see coming. Yeah. And this can damage a fish's internal organs, including its swim bladder, which inflates and deflates in response to pressure changes. So sudden changes in pressure can cause the swim bladder to expand rapidly, basically like a car airbag, mm. which can like, fuck them up inside I guess put a lot of, of like air into their blood and damage their other internal organs and stuff like that yeah and the pressure changes of this of going through a dam some dams have been compared to the pressure change that a humid would feel if they got into an elevator at the base of Mount Everest and went to the peak of Mount Everest in the blink of an eye Whoa. so that seems like it would mess you up pretty bad yeah and it messes up their swim bladders pretty bad. So sensor fish are helping engineers design dams that create less turbulence or have more gradual pressure changes, mostly with like different types of propellers on turbines and stuff like that. Uh, and sensor fish technology is also starting to be used worldwide, where it's helping to protect fish in countries like Germany, where hydroelectric dams are required by the government to perform live fish safety tests. <laughs> So now they don't have to do that as much anymore, I guess. But it's probably way more expensive because they're like $4,000 a sensor fish or something like that. Might as well just go get some fish. (laughs) Well, as you said, you cannot have like a post-interview with a fish. Bring it into the room with a light on its head and be like, what did you go through? (laughs) Tell me about the barometric pressure you experienced. I don't know why you have to be so rude to him. I don't know. Good cop, bad cop. (laughs) Yeah, you're a good cop, Sam. Yeah. I put the little, like, uh, the little foily blanket on them you put the foily blanket on them you like you want some fries you want i'm going to in and out you want to pick something up and then while you're gone i'm like look now that sam's gone you're gonna (laughs) tell me all about what your acceleration rates how much did you bump tell me about your bumps (laughs) uh so so we've got uh mayonnaise used to generate electricity using biogas (laughs) generated by bacteria from sari or electrofish what are they called sensor fish that have figured out that rapidly expanding swim bladders were harming fish inside hydroelectric dams, a thing that we didn't know and needed to know. I think that the winner of this is the sensor fish. You know, I'm thinking of it in in terms of the of, of a TikTok. Yeah. Mayonnaise power, it's a better headline, I think. But it's, you know, it's like it's it is in the frame of stuff that I already knew quite a lot about. Maybe I'm different in that because I spent so much time thinking about green energy. But sensor fish. I don't know, especially their little balloons. The fact that they got balloons. The balloons are pretty cute. Yeah. All right. Uh, Well, you had a two Hank Buck deficit to overcome, Sam. Yeah. And I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to say that you're sensor fish. Uh, Sari, I could see Sari feeling a little bit slighted there. Yeah, I did so good at that game, but the sensor fish. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to look one up so that I can feel better about my loss. They don't look as cool as you are imagining. So congratulations, Sam, on your win. And that means it's time to ask the science couch where we've got listener questions for our couch of finely honed scientific minds. This question is from Benedict C., 
could we generate power for mini hydroelectric dams and rain gutters? I mean, theoretically, yeah. Uh, I think that there are a couple of problems with this idea. Should I hit you with them, Sari, or should you tell me about them? You should do that. This is like a topic that you do know a lot about that I don't know a lot about. So, Well, I know both about energy generation and about gutters because I have them and I have to clean them. <laughs> and so my main my main worry here is that you want your gutter to be clean uh, and like a real, real smooth slide all the way down because stuff gets in there and you can't like prevent stuff from getting in there. There are a couple of ways that people have sort of experimented with how to like prevent the leaves and the detritus of the world from getting into gutters. But for the most part, unless you can get rid of that i don't really see it happening the other concern here uh would be that it's probably not as much power as you might be thinking the sort of like a a roof's worth of water traveling down a roof's worth of height Mm -hmm. now that might not be the case for a really tall building um so maybe like a skyscraper could could generate a significant amount of power that way basically you can imagine a hydroelectric plant not as like water traveling downward but as the weight of the water that is sitting on top of the water, pushing the water at the bottom through something. It's that weight of water that that can not just turn a turbine, but like turn it a lot and really fast with a lot of energy. So that difference between the height of the water and the, you know, the amount of sort of pressure that's built up on top of the the water that's getting squeezed out of a hole at the bottom hmm. is what you're what you're concerned about. So you need a lot of you need a lot of water stacked up in your gutter to turn a turbine. And I don't know that you'd get a ton. But also my main concern is stuff getting stuck in it. And you have got you always gotta clean out your gutters. You gotta sometimes shove a hose up there to get it all that stuff, all those leaves that are packed up in the downspout out. And you don't want something in there blocking anything up any more than it already is. Right. That's basically what I found, too, is that um, people are looking into what's called micro hydroelectric power systems. So Mm -hmm. that's anywhere from generating five to 100 kilowatts, but mostly in rivers or streams. Yeah. For all the reasons that you were explaining, where a lot of the structures that we build to collect water are not regular enough to to make it worth it, like material costs, maintenance costs, or like even the power generation and needing to siphon it off to a home that exists. Like, Mm. would it be worth it for everyone to have their own like gutter-based mini hydroelectric system? Even though like that idea sounds very cool and modern and and, like the revolution like could happen. Uh, But but, like practically (laughs) it... There are too many limitations with how um, even micro hydroelectric power systems work and need to be set up and maintained right. for that to be a great idea. Yeah, I think a lot of micro hydro is, or at least last time I paid attention to it, it was largely for people who lived far away from electricity infrastructure who could generate power that way. If it's hard to do solar or it's hard to do other things, you could, you know, if you live in like dense forests with a lot of water. You can generate power that way and and be able to have lights and laptops and stuff, even if you're way off the grid. What I learned today was I didn't need to work as hard as I did for this episode because this is not my area of expertise and I worked really hard to do it. (laughs) But I should have just remembered that Hank knows everything. (laughs) Well, if you want to ask the Science Couch your question, follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we'll tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Thank you to at Jeffro.vt, at Mucalepticon, and everybody else who tweeted us your questions for this episode. If you like SciShowTangents, don't you feel compelled to help us out? 
some way because like, oh, it's such a good podcast. I'd like to help them out. Well, here's some ways you can do that. You can become a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash scishowtangents because that will get you access to things like our bonus episodes and our newsletter. Our bonus episodes are stupid fun. I don't want to say they're any better than our normal episodes, but they're pretty good. Uh, also, we're less than 100 away from our Cars 2 time travel meter uh, commentary. Wow, we're still creeping up. We're almost at 422. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Sam's really excited to get to 420. Uh, when we get to 420, Sam and I will nod to each other and go, ah, and that's it. Uh, you can also leave us a review wherever you listen. That's very helpful, and it helps us know what you like about the show. Finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell, tell people, people about, about us. us. Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and Sam Schultz, who edits a lot of these episodes along with Hiroko Matsushima. Our social media organizer is Paolo Garcia Prieto. Our editorial assistant is Deboki Chakravarti. Our sound design is by Joseph Tunamedish, and we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. In North Carolina. North Carolina? North Carolina. <laughs> Woohoo. <laughs> the, uh, the pork industry uh, and the energy industry have teamed up on what they hope will be the next great source of energy. Giant pools of pig poop. The ponds yeah. are called lagoons, and they're full of pig manure and bacteria uh, that comes out of the, the areas where the pigs live. Uh, they're unpleasant places, as you would imagine. But uh, they digest the manure, the bacteria, and they release gases. And the lagoon is covered by a big piece of black plastic, and that traps the gas inside so it can be transported to a station to remove the water vapor and carbon dioxide. And that leaves behind pure methane that can be burned in a gas-fired home furnace or an electric power plant. While this process is considered a zero-carbon fuel because it prevents greenhouse emissions, some people in the world are not a huge fan of it because of the smell and also the possibility of the lagoons uh, flooding during hurricanes, which then creates a giant toxic mess that you can't really clean up. Uh, Also, in general, we are probably in the next hundred years just going to move a little bit away from the entire institution of the live animal food products uh, one step at a time. One step at a time. Are you pretty confident about that? I'm pretty confident about that. You know, I think that that people 100 years from now will still be eating meat. I think that uh, almost all of it will not come from live animals. But some of it will because some people will pay a lot of money for a unique experience, even if that is intrinsically tied to suffering. Hilarious.